Turkish Odyssey. Discover Istanbul and Turkey with Sheriff Yenen. Hello everyone. Another top must-see place in Turkey is the Topkapı Palace, an extremely important Ottoman palace in Istanbul. It was used for about 400 years. The vast Ottoman Empire, which once dominated three continents, was ruled from this palace. And it is now a museum open to visitors. Today, I will take you on a tour in this museum. As I mentioned earlier, the Ottoman Empire was first established in the area of Bursa in 1299. This was the last year of the 13th century. Bursa was the first capital, however, later Edirne, a city on what is now the Bulgarian and Greek border, became the second capital for the empire. Mehmed II was a son of Sultan Murat II and was born in Edirne. He became the seventh Ottoman Sultan when he was a young boy. Mehmed was a genius. In my view, he was the Turkish version of Alexander the Great. He spoke six, seven languages and was able to write poetry in Persian and read Homer in ancient Greek. He wanted to rule the world and in order to achieve this goal and become the new Roman emperor, he knew he had to capture the invincible city of Constantinople. So in May of 1453, at age 21, Mehmed made an astounding conquest of Constantinople, taking it from the Byzantines and ending the Byzantine Empire. He declared Constantinople to be the new capital for the Ottoman Empire. He didn't even bother to change the name of the city. It simply became Constantinie, with a Turkish suffix meaning the place of Constantine. Topkapı Palace was actually the second palace that Mehmet built in Istanbul. His first palace was located in Beyazıt, covering parts of the Suleymaniye Mosque and the main campus of the Istanbul University. Topkapı Palace took about 20 years to construct. When it was completed, it was named Sarayı Cedid, New Palace. It wasn't really called Topkapı Palace until the 19th century. After it was completed, Mehmet's first palace became known as the Old Palace. Topkapı Palace was fully functioning for about four centuries, from the second half of the 15th century to the middle of the 19th century. And during that time, it hosted 25 of the total 36 Ottoman sultans, from Mehmet II to Sultan Abdülmecid. Over the span of its 400 years, it seemed that every sultan who ascended the throne either added new sections to the palace or changed parts of it, giving us a taste of diverse architectural styles. Changes to it were sometimes made to commemorate victories or to repair the damage caused by earthquakes or fires, and at other times to meet specific needs of the sultan in residence. Topkapı Palace has never been static. It grew in an ongoing 
organic process over time in response to its environment. Out of necessity, there was an unending correlation between the state of the empire and life in the palace. As the empire expanded, so did the palace. With the increasing growth of the empire came serious security concerns for the sultans in power. The sultans often tried to make themselves more secure by moving farther away from people and nature as they retreated behind walls. As a result, they brought nature inside the walls of the palace by building extensive and beautiful gardens and by decorating the interiors with exquisite landscape paintings. They frequently added miniatures and colorful tiles depicting nature. An important feature of most Ottoman palaces is that they were built with a humble, simple, and practical understanding. They were functional. With the influence of westernization in the Ottoman Empire, in the mid-19th century, Sultan Abdülmecid, the 31st Sultan of the Empire, built an elaborate, opulent, European-style waterfront palace. He proudly moved his court into this newly built Dolmabahçe Palace. The Topkapı, however, retained some functions such as the imperial treasury, library, and mint. Just one year after the new Turkish Republic was founded, Topkapı Palace became a public museum in 1924. Topkapı was a virtual city palace that boasted a population of about 4,000 people and was spread out over an area of 70 hectares, 173 acres. It was both the residence of the sultan and his court and the seat of the divan, the government of the empire. The actual palace is divided into two sections, Birun and Enderun, the outer and inner palaces. The sections, which are open to visitors today, consist of four massive consecutive courtyards. The first two courtyards form the outer palace, or Birun. The inner palace, or Enderun, consists of the third and fourth courtyards together with the harem. Outside the first courtyard, in front of the imperial gate, was the place where the sultan met people. On Fridays, People, knowing that the sultan would start his procession from there to one of the imperial mosques to pray the Friday noontime prayer, would wait for the sultan there from morning hours. When the sultan came out, they would scream in chorus like this, Don't be so proud, sultan. God is greater than you. Then the procession would start. The first courtyard today is open to the public just as it was when the sultans lived there. During the daytime hours, as long as you are not armed, you can enter the first courtyard through the imperial gate and visit it. It is like a park, and in good weather, you are likely to see families wandering around and children playing. The tradition lives on. The first courtyard was actually the service area of the palace which consisted of a hospital with a 120 patient capacity, bakeries, an arsenal, the imperial mint, storage for wood, and dormitories. The Church of Hagia Irene, 
divine peace is also in the first courtyard. The Ottomans never converted this church into a mosque as it was only used for the storage of weapons. The building is open to the public with a separate ticket. On special occasions, there are sometimes classical music concerts in this 1,500-year-old beautiful monument. The second courtyard starts from Babu Selam, the Gate of Peace, or the Gate of Salutation. This courtyard is where the Divan, the meeting place for the Imperial Council, was located. And this courtyard was open to anyone who had business with the state. Today, you will need a ticket to enter it. The Divan was the Imperial Council. Although whatever the Sultans said was the law, they still wanted to institutionalize their governance and administration, and did so by setting up the Divan. The divan got its name from the couches placed in front of the walls inside the meeting room. The divan met four times a week. In the earliest years, the sultan attended the meetings of the council, but later he sat invisibly behind a lattice window on the wall opposite the entrance and listened to the discussions. The members of the divan never knew whether the sultan was present or not until and unless the sultan decided to speak. The Grand Vizier presided over the divan, and state issues were discussed there, and advisory decisions were made. However, it was always at the discretion of the sultan whether to comply with these decisions or not. The members of the divan consisted of the Grand Vizier, Prime Minister, four additional viziers, ministers, each with different responsibilities. The Anatolian and European Kazaskers, who were in charge of the judicial affairs. The treasurer, the Nishanji, general secretary who controlled the fieflands, commander-in-chief of the fleet, as well as the Sheikhul Islam, head of religious matters. On Fridays, the divan functioned as a court of appeals. Next to the divan room is the tallest tower in the palace, the Tower of Justice. The simple architecture of the palace did not allow any building to be big and monumental. Nothing could be more important than the sultan himself. The only exception was the Tower of Justice, because justice was the most important asset. In the second courtyard, there were also private stables for about 200 horses of the sultan, an external treasury which served as the state treasury and the massive kitchens. Today, when you visit, the old state treasury functions as an exhibition room for ceremonial weapons and armory. Architect Sinan, the most prominent Ottoman architect, designed the kitchens during the reign of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. Kitchens consisted of 10 large rooms with two rows of gigantic chimneys. 50 to 60 various dishes were cooked for about 4 to 5,000 people every day. Up to 300 people worked in these kitchens at the same time. No other palace in the world would have a kitchen complex of this size. 
The kitchens also prepared separate menus for separate classes of residents and guests. Meals were not served in the kitchens, but all meals were prepared there and then taken to the relevant location of the residents and guests. Today, Chinese, Turkish, and Japanese porcelains and kitchen utensils are exhibited in the kitchen section. With more than 12,000 pieces, Topkapı's Chinese porcelains are considered among the most valuable collections in the world. Still in the second courtyard, but just in front of the third gate, the Gate of Felicity, was an area used for every kind of outdoor ceremony, including religious holidays, the new sultan's ascension to throne, and funeral services. On those special occasions, the sultan's actual throne of solid gold was placed there together with an enormous size carpet. People who attended would stand according to their rank and status. Members of the foreign missions would also be invited to some of these ceremonies. To create a mighty atmosphere, the military band would make music and some wild animals brought from Africa would be placed around the courtyard. The most important ceremony held here would be the Julus ceremony, ascension to the throne. When a sultan died, there was no precise law describing who would ascend the throne. Sultans had tens of sons from many wives. The son, who was physically closest to the throne, who had the best relation with the high officials, whose mother was the closest to the sultan, whose mother was the most talented with her intrigues, would most likely be the next sultan. This practice continued until the early 17th century when Sultan Ahmed I made a new law about it. From then on, the oldest and sane male member of the royal family would ascend the throne. Ascension to a throne ceremony would start with the funeral service of the sultan who just deceased. The dead body would be shown to the crown prince first. This would be like a reminder that he would reach that status one day. Then they would ask for his permission to start with the funeral services. The dead body of the sultan would be taken to the fountain of the holy relics in the fourth courtyard. The body would be washed, put in a white-colored winding sheet, and later taken in a coffin to the marble table in front of the holy relics room in the third courtyard. Here, prayers would be said altogether. The death of the sultan would be announced to public from the Tower of Justice and minarets of major mosques in the city. In the meantime, the coffin would be put on a wooden table in front of the Gate of Felicity in the second courtyard. The crown prince would be taken to the holy relics section. The grand vizier and the Sheikhul Islam, head of the religious matters, would bow and kiss the hem of the prince's kaftan to show obedience to him. The prince would wear the turban of Prophet Joseph as a sign of sovereignty. Other high officials would show their obedience too. He would wear a fur kaftan and pray there. Then he would walk to the gate of Felicity where a golden ceremonial throne awaits. 
people would applaud and scream for him upon his arrival and when he sits on the throne, twice. The Grand Vizier would kiss the hem of his kaftan one more time to celebrate him. The audience would scream in chorus, Don't be so proud, Sultan. God is greater than you. He would say prayers for the funeral of the deceased Sultan. The funeral service would be completed in the presence of the new Sultan. The coffin would finally be taken to his monumental tomb in a procession. The new Sultan would finally go to the inner palace and tips would be distributed to soldiers and other palace people. And this would be the end of the ceremony. On the other hand, when the Sultan did not go to a battle, he would send the flag or standard of Prophet Muhammad to the battle with the commander. The Sultan himself would bring the standard from the Holy Relics Room to the Gate of Felicity. It was here that the Sultan ceremonially handed the standard to the Grand Vizier or the army commander before he went to war. The small indented stone on the ground in front of the gate marks the place where the banner of Muhammad stood. In addition to the flag ceremonies, the Janissaries' salaries, the elite warriors of the Sultan, were also paid here every three months. There was a big ceremony under the supervision of the Sultan himself. Their salaries were paid from the nearby state treasury. On those salary payment days, a morning meal consisting of bread, soup, rice, and zarde, kind of a pudding made with rice and saffron, was distributed to the soldiers in the second courtyard. Followed a ceremony of akide candy, which was a sign of the soldiers' loyalty to the sultan. During this quarterly ceremony, a few high-ranking soldiers of the Janissaries went to the Divan and presented the Akide candy to the members of the Divan. In doing this, they demonstrated and assured their loyalty to the Sultan and the members of the Divan. Afterwards, more of this candy was distributed to everyone else. At times, the soldiers abused their power, rejected their salary, and demanded other things. In most cases, the Sultan would agree. A wonderful tradition related to food in the palace was the baklava procession. Every year, in the middle of the holy month of Ramadan, the Sultan gifted trays of baklava to the Janissaries. Baklavas that were prepared in the palace kitchen were taken to the Janissaries via the processional street, and the next day, empty trays were returned to the kitchens. Beyond the gate of Felicity is the third courtyard, which was private. This was the heart of the palace, the inner sanctum. The first building you encounter after entering the courtyard is the audience hall. This square building is a pavilion surrounded by a colonnade of 22 columns supporting the large roof with overhanging eaves. Foreign ambassadors or messengers and advisory decisions made by the divan were presented to the Sultan in this room. The third courtyard was surrounded by the quarters of the palace school students. Palace school was a very prestigious school named the Enderun School. 
Ottomans established this school for security reasons. They did not want to employ outsiders or well-known local people from powerful Muslim families for the administration. They did not want people from outside to be involved in palace affairs or administration. This way, public knowledge of the private habits and conduct of the sultans and their administration were closely guarded. Boys, recruited from Christian families, had to live with Muslim Turkish families for a while. In this period, they converted into Islam and learned Turkish, Islamic principles and traditions. They later received lessons and drills that improved their physical and spiritual abilities. In the beginning of their studies, they were known as novice boys. Those who were identified to be gifted were later accepted to the palace school to get a higher level of education with a lot more discipline. High-ranking officials, viziers, army commanders of the Ottomans primarily came from this palace school. During their school years in the palace, students served the sultan as page boys. The message was clear. You may be whatever you can, but you will always be a loyal servant to the sultan. The boys related to the sultan like a father, and they were always loyal to him. Their education was completed between the ages of 25 and 30, and then they were assigned duties. In the middle of the courtyard was the library of Sultan Ahmed III. It housed thousands of books, which were open to the use of the palace school students. On the right-hand side of the courtyard is a section where the sultan's kaftans are exhibited. Right next to this building is the imperial treasury, where a vast collection of artworks, jewelry, and money belonging to the Ottoman dynasty are exhibited in four separate rooms. Many of the things in here came from wars. Sultans took a significant portion from the booties obtained in battles. Some of the booties would be shared among the participants of the battle, and the rest would go to the state treasury. You may be familiar with the most famous item in the treasury, that is, the Topkapı dagger. In the famous Topkapı movie from 1964, they were trying to steal this dagger. In this very enjoyable movie, starring actors and actresses were Melina Mercury, Peter Ustinov, Maximilian Schell, and Robert Morley. The other precious object is the Spoonmaker's Diamond. It is 86 carats, teardrop-shaped, and surrounded by 49 large diamonds. The Imperial Treasury is temporarily closed for restoration, but some of the important objects from here are on display in other sections. The dormitory of the Royal Pages houses the Imperial Portraits Collection. Some beautiful paintings of the sultans are exhibited here. In a Muslim culture, in which making pictures of people is forbidden, paintings of sultans become really interesting and very valuable. There were numerous mosques in the palace, but the largest was in this third courtyard. This is the mosque where the sultan and the students prayed. This mosque actually shared one of its walls with the mosque in the harem section. Women in the harem mosque were able to hear the imam in the boy's side through a window on the wall and pray simultaneously. 
The private chamber now houses the chamber of the holy relics. These relics are considered to be the most sacred relics of the Muslim world. The jacket of Muhammad, his swords, a bow, one tooth, hair from his beard, an autographed letter, his footprint, and other relics such as the swords of the first four caliphs, the cane of Moses, the turban of Joseph, the hand, arm, and skull bones of St. John the Baptist. Many of the Islamic relics were captured and brought from the Egyptian campaign of 1517 by Sultan Selim I, the father of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. It was Selim I who also added the title of Caliph to that of Sultan. After that, all Ottoman Sultans automatically became Caliphs when they ascended the throne. The Caliph was the supreme leader of the Muslim community as a successor of the Prophet Muhammad. This title, however, held little significance for the Sultans until the Ottoman Empire began to decline. In the 19th century, with the advent of Christian influence in the Near East, the Sultan began to emphasize his role as Caliph in an effort to gain the support of Muslims living outside his empire. The Caliphate, however, was abolished in 1924 by the Turkish Grand National Assembly during the time of Atatürk. In the fourth courtyard, there are many terraces with pavilions, some of which overlook the Sea of Marmara, while others overlook the Golden Horn. Among them are Mejidiye Pavilion, there's a restaurant and cafe there today, Sofa Pavilion, Baghdad Pavilion, and Revan Pavilion. This courtyard was generally used for recreation. The terrace near the Baghdad and Revan Pavilions, overlooking the Golden Horn, was named Iftariye, and this was used for fast-breaking meals during the fasting month of Ramadan. Iftar is the name for fast-breaking meals. The pavilion just next to the Iftariye Terrace was named the Circumcision Pavilion as some princes were circumcised there. Generally speaking, pavilions have a typical architecture. They are mostly topped with domes. The walls are covered with gorgeous iznik tiles from both inside and outside. No tables, no chairs, carpets and cushions on the floor, fireplaces in each room, portable braziers for charcoal, lots of niches in the walls for decorative items, stained glass windows, most of the times in two layers, shutters made with inlaid mother of pearl and tortoise shells, water taps and fountains sometimes, calligraphy and illuminated wall paintings. How was life at the court? The focal point of the court was the Sultan, of course. The Sultan's daily life was very simple. In addition to their regular daily activities, in order to broaden their knowledge base, Sultans gathered scholars, poets, artists, historians to the palace. They were themselves great students of thought, literature, and art. They commissioned new works, manuscripts, bindings, or maps for their collections. In fact, most sultans of the Ottoman Empire possessed many amazing skills themselves. They were ardent readers, competent calligraphers, poets, archers, writers, 
javelin players, hunters, composers. To give you a few examples, Suleiman the Magnificent was a jeweler and wrote great poems. Abdul Hamid II was an expert carpenter. Ahmed III was a neat calligrapher. Mahmud II was both a calligrapher and a music lover. Selim III was a great composer. In daily life at the palace, silence was dominant. Hundreds of people tried not to encounter the sultan unless they needed to, and so they kept their voices down. It is said that the people of the court sometimes developed a silent body language in order to communicate among themselves. Soldiers got training in the first courtyard, food was prepared in the kitchens, divan had meetings in the second courtyard, students received their education in their school and took care of the sultan's clothing and other personal needs, and concubines were always busy in the harem. The most interesting section of the palace is the harem. This section requires an additional ticket. The entrance to the harem is in the second courtyard and its exit is in the third courtyard. Once you enter through the turnstiles of the harem, you first come across with the section of the Zülüflü Baltacı men, Tresset Halberdiers. These are the X-men with locks of hair hanging on two sides of their faces. In times of war, they went ahead of the army to open ways with their axes. In times of peace, they provided wood to burn in fireplaces. They ran errands as well. After a quick tour of this section of the X-man, you enter into the harem. The concept of the harem has provoked much speculation, curiosity about the unknown, and the lack of access to accurate information has inspired highly imaginative literature among the people of the Western world. There are some who think that the harem was a sort of prison, full of women who were kept exclusively for the sultan's pleasure. This is simply not true. The harem was literally the sultan's family quarters. It was a secluded area within the palace where the sultan and all his family members resided. The word harem, which in Arabic means forbidden, refers to the private sector of a Muslim household in which women live and work. The term is also used for women dwelling there. Harem residents in the Topkapı Palace can be divided in three groups. First group will be the members of the royal family. Second group is the guards. And the third, concubines some of which were servants of the royal family. Members of the sultan's family included his mother, his official wives, maximum of four, his sons until their deployment in service to the state, his daughters and sisters until they married, as well as the maids, servants, and guards of the royal family. In addition, the sultan's children received private education from tutors brought to the harem. The head of the harem was always the mother of the sultan, Valide Sultan, queen mother. She had enormous influence on everything that took place within the harem, and frequently her influence extended to her son, the sultan, as well. The second group, guards, were black eunuchs. They were slaves brought from Africa, castrated and they provided security for the harem. 
The third group in the harem was the concubines. Who were they and why were they needed? The impetus for supplying concubines to the harem was indirectly tied to the state's resolve to stop the outbreak of civil wars. So determined was the state to maintain order, it went to extreme lengths to avoid civil unrest. For instance, beginning with the 15th century rule of Sultan Mehmed II, the princes ascending the throne were free to kill off their brothers to eliminate the possibility of any of the surviving sons' claim to the throne. This was accepted to be very normal for the integrity and continuity of the state. This lethal practice persisted until Sultan Ahmed I stopped it. From the 17th century onwards, instead of killing brothers, threatening or risky brothers were kept under control in the twin pavilions in the harem section. This was also named the cage. This was like a luxury prison and they had everything but freedom. Another way in which the state avoided civil unrest was to strictly defend the privacy of the sultans and their administration. The service of concubines in the harem was undoubtedly one of the most effective ways the state kept peace in the land. The process by which girls became the wives of the sultans was crucial to this effort. In general, sultans did not marry local Muslim girls or bring local Muslim girls into the harem as concubines. As I noted earlier, it was vital to prevent close contact with locals living outside the palace who might give away too much insider information and expose the sultans to rumor and public scrutiny. With few exceptions, sultans married beautiful, well-educated concubines. All were initially non-Muslims who converted to Islam after entering the harem. For this reason, recruiting the best and the brightest non-Muslim girls for the harem and training them as potential wives for the sultans was institutionalized over the centuries. Who were the concubines? Were they slave girls? The palace often purchased beautiful young girls for the harem. Still, other girls were taken captive as slaves following military conquests or were presented as gifts to the sultan by foreign dignitaries. When these girls entered the harem, they were thoroughly scrutinized and assessed. All immediately converted to Islam, were given Muslim names, and were trained as potential wives, first for the sultan and later for the high officials of the state. Among the concubines in the harem, there were four main classes. Odalık, servants. Gedikli, one of the sultan's 12 personal servants. Iqbal or Gözde, favorites who allegedly had affairs with the sultan, and Kadın or Haseki Sultan, wives who bore the children of the sultan. When her son ascended the throne, following the death of his father, the sultan, a Haseki Sultan was promoted to Valide Sultan, the queen mother. She then became the most important female in the palace. After her, in order of importance, were the sultan's sisters. The next most influential women residing in the harem were the four wives of the sultan. Their rank was decreed 
by the chronologic order of their son's births. All wives had conjugal rights with the sultan and had their own apartments within the harem. Among the concubines, the favorites also were given their own apartments. All other concubines, however, slept in dormitories. Concubines were given instruction according to their perceived talents. They could learn to play a musical instrument, sing, dance, write, embroider, or so. They were also allowed to go for leisure drives in covered carriages from which they could see out from behind their veils and curtained windows. They also were permitted to organize parties upon the Bosphorus or along the Golden Horn. What happened to the harem when a sultan died? The new sultan would then bring his own harem, which meant that the former harem was dispersed. Some concubines were sent to the old palace, some remained as teachers, while other older ones were frequently pensioned off. In the harem section of the palace, you will be able to see very special places like the rooms of guards, apartments of official wives, the apartment and the courtyard of the queen mother, bathhouses, hammams of the sultan and the queen mother, ceremonial halls, corridors, the cage, a mosque, and many more rooms. Together with the harem visit, the Topkapı Palace will take a minimum of two, three hours. Depending on your interest level, you can even spend the whole day there. Please remember, the Topkapı Palace is one of the most unusual palaces in the world. It is a unique place with its oriental style. No furniture, no tables, no chairs, no forks. Well, I hope you have enjoyed our tour in the Topkapı Palace. See you in another episode. Stay tuned. 